So we're here near Northumberland Avenue on the embankment and I'm with Robert Huxford, director of the Urban Design Group. So Robert, um, tell us a little bit about why the Urban Design Group was formed and a little bit about what urban design actually means to you, what it is in general, just so our audience have a better understanding of the term. Well, the Urban Design Group was formed in 1978 and one of the factors, perhaps the driving factor that caused its formation was problems with individual professions not really recognising the role that the others had to play in creating successful towns and cities. So that's planning, architecture, engineering, landscape. Um, They all perform an absolutely vital role in creating wonderful environments. Uh, But the role has to be performed together, um, not separately. Nobody's got a monopoly on all of the answers, all of the solutions. People have to work together. And that's really what the Urban Design Group tries to do. It tries to bridge the professions. Um, Anyone can be involved in urban design. Anybody can potentially do urban design. Uh, What needs to happen is, I'm running out of things to say. (laughs) I hope you can edit this. No, that's Um, fine. Um, We don't need to edit it. It's just a free flow conversation. But really, um, I suppose we talk about working in silos a lot, don't we? So we've got landscape architects for example in a local authority we've got then people on place making teams in inverted commas or people running capital projects and they've all got some element of urban design integrated into that role but sometimes people don't speak to each other so what would you say urban design actually encompasses in general what's what's the kind of what's that kernel that that makes a better design in general for our towns and cities yeah well people talk about urban design in different ways. To me, urban design is all of the things you need to do to design a town. Um, It's absolutely everything from uh, the utilities, power, uh, drainage, uh, streets, buildings, facilities, community infrastructure, schools, the whole lot. Um, And it could also include communication systems as well, because it's how a, a place functions and how a society functions that is so important. Um, there, there don't need to be any artificial barriers that are created really on the basis of attempts at defining words. Um, what we've got are towns and cities and villages and streets and spaces and parks and gardens and rivers and streams. That's what we've got. They need to be looked after by, by humans in the best way we can possibly manage. That's a really interesting idea of taking that holistic approach and um, breaking out of these kind of discipline approaches almost, you know, where everybody has their expert area that they work in. And obviously at Green Blue Urban, we we get mostly involved in in the landscaping and the engineering. And sometimes people talk to us about the above ground and how they want something to look visually. But actually, we have to try and get them to think about how uh, urban design and how landscaping will have to take below ground into consideration. So how do you think that all comes together, the above and the below? Do you think that's something that people need to consider a bit more in the future? Um, They need to consider it in the future. They need to consider it now. And they used to consider it in the past. And it's fantastic that we're here on the embankment. Um, This was a scheme that was uh, produced under Sir Joseph Bazalshit. What we've got is this wonderful combination of integrated urban development. So we've got a land reclamation scheme that's taken land away from the Thames and we've got a park created here. Um, We've got the district and circle line underneath. Um, That provides 
uh, a tremendous amount of transportation infrastructure for London. We've got the Thames Interceptor sewer uh, just a little bit uh, further away from us. Um, that was addressing London's chronic public health problems that uh, were afflicting society in the 19th century. We've got a, uh, a flood defence system, uh, coastal protection if you like, uh, in terms of the, the embankment itself. So that's stopping uh, many hectares of land in the surrounding area from being flooded by extreme storm surges uh, coinciding with when there, there have been a period of excessive rainfall uh, up in, in the higher reaches of the Thames Valley. Um, we've got a wonderful legacy of trees that have been planted here, these magnificent London plains. They're fabulous. When we, when we look above, there's this uh, net of branches. And uh, they were planted all the way along the embankment. Uh, and the, the road, the highway that was created, uh, provides a at the time a wonderful carriage ride or a, a walking route for people going down to the Thames, being in the sunshine, looking at the river come and go. Um, now it's uh, a bit too much of a, uh, a transport corridor maybe, rather too much traffic, but it's increasingly been turned over to cycling and walking. So we're seeing maybe that Victorian vision re-emerging. That's, that's really interesting you should talk about the Victorian approach because obviously we think about looking after trees under the pavement and suspended systems and engineered systems under the ground, which actually we previously wrote in another blog post about how the Victorians had engineered green infrastructure and we're actually coming full circle almost now to thinking about how we engineer for flooding in a more natural way, but how we also support green infrastructure below the ground as well. So what do you think the future of urban design would needs to be to consider green infrastructure and sustainable urban drainage and multifunctionality because you've talked about how everything comes together on this particular site and we don't see a lot of that happening everywhere it's there's there's places where they could do better do you have any sort of top tips for people when they're approaching a scheme to think about those things together and in the whole and sort of what might make a successful design approach there are major problems <clears throat> i th think that there's it shouldn't be difficult. There aren't technical challenges. Um, there are uh, engineering systems available. Um, the problems of funding, organisational and legislative. And it starts with government departments creating separate species of legislation that almost hinder uh, joined up working. If you've got highways being undertaken by one group of people, planning by another, uh, drainage by another, utilities being very little regulated at all, um, there's a great problem there. And there's a lot of interest in uh, developing approaches to designing the underworld, designing the understreet, we could call it, in a more cohesive, cohesive way. And um, particularly if we're trying to create cities that function at a higher density, um, using underground spaces becomes absolutely critical. Um, at the moment, Utilities have rights to uh, stick their apparatus, their cables, pipes, whatever, pretty much where, wherever they will. And in doing so, they can congest the underground spaces and it can stop things like trees being planted. It can prevent future technologies being introduced. For example, we might want to start um, recycling water. Um, there's 
great concern about falling rainfall levels. And uh, one of the approaches uh, being advanced in uh, Australia is water-sensitive urban design. So you have a, a separate pipe network that uh, recycles, processes, and uh, stores uh, grey water. Uh, there's heating, district heating systems or district cooling. Um, again, you need the, the space under streets to make this possible. And of course, trees. Um, if temperatures are going to increase, we need some way of moderating temperatures in, in our towns and cities. And the potential trees have of providing evaporative uh, cooling mustn't be ignored. Um, so there we go, a, a range of different uh, options there that could be followed. But the problem is with ownership and maintenance. And with local councils being uh, strapped for cash, uh, maintaining these areas becomes quite a challenge. And the, the effect can be to uh, really compromise things at the design stage. Uh, if cost cutting happens, trees are eliminated from new schemes. Uh, we're in a funny situation where almost all of the things that will make a street nice, such as landscaping, such as better quality light, lighting, tree planting, better quality surfacing materials, they're all taxed um, in effect. Uh, the highway authority, the local authority, will require commuted sums from a developer uh, to cover the cost of maintenance and replacement. Whereas a bog standard highway specification of bitumen macadam, concrete curbs, concrete slab footways doesn't require the commuted sum. So there's something that needs to change there. Um, up and down the country, there are, there's an increasing trend for new developments. The, the scheme promoters not to have their highways adopted, but to be retained in private ownership by some sort of management company uh, with a, uh, a, fund, a, a fee being taken off the, the landowners. Uh, but in effect, that creates a, a separate local authority that's doing similar sorts of activities. Um, it would make sense if local authorities had the funds to do the, do the job. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing because we've talked about sort of the public realm and we're sitting in a, a very public space here but developers are a kind of another world that we have to consider because we're we're sort of designing these huge urban extensions and we've got this whole move towards garden cities garden villages whatever you want to call them the concept is the same we are developing our way into future problems because we're not building in resilience so do you think that the urban design approach taken within the private sector is is somewhat different to that that you're seeing in public realm schemes because sometimes local authorities can tap into central government funding so for example you know in Plymouth they've got a good amount of money to do the better places scheme so they'll get a really good they'll get a really good quality design at the end of it because they've managed to they're very lucky they've got they've got some more money than they thought they would do however um, when you're looking at sort of bog standard new development that's almost in the hand of the private sector isn't it really in a sense the developer has got a lot of um, autonomy over how they're designing that space it's not a sort of government funded initiative the local authority are just responding to a plan and there's that back and forth. Do you think that that's an issue? Do we think we need to think about how that's bridged? Well, the, the developer doesn't need to have autonomy. What the developer wants to do is to build out their development, uh, make some sort of a profit, avoid risk. Um, and 
maintain their reputation. Um, what's needed is the planning authority uh, having high, high requirements as to what they expect. Uh, it needs the highway authority to uh, work with the planning authorities, a, a joined up unit, so that they're both requiring the same sort of product at the end. Um, there's no reason why this shouldn't take place. Um, there have been several reports published, I think, over the last 15 years that have called for a, a joined-up approach. And it's slightly embarrassing where a highway authority and a planning authority don't work together. Uh, it must be really confusing for a developer if uh, they, they have to go through maybe three different processes to get their, their scheme approved. Firstly, uh, planning, then highways development control, and then finally highways adoption. Uh, and if the apparent public sector mind changes uh, as the, the scheme goes through the process, it, it doesn't come across as being very professional, and it, it's something that could be, could be sorted out. But it, it's really, we need strong local authorities representing their communities, demanding places that people will be proud to live in. They need to be people-friendly places, people places where people will enjoy living their lives, where they can live healthy and happy lives. And at the moment, um, the indications are that we're not getting urban extensions, we're getting really suburban extensions. Um, we are, uh, a survey by the urban design group found that uh, I think maybe over 80% of authorities are still using street design guidance that is based on practices in the 1960s that were, these were redrawn over 10 years ago. Um, they favor car ownership and use. And now society has changed. Uh, we, we perceive different problems and different solutions. Uh, we need to be a lot more people focused in our, our design and it, give them environments where they can walk, cycle and lead healthy lifestyles. So what's the future for the Urban Design Group, given all these challenges? So we've talked about water management, you talked about flooding or then lack of water, so there's there's different issues around water management. You've talked about green infrastructure, transport, then there's the legislative and the policy element as well. There's a lot to think about as well as highways and the underworld. So what, what are the Urban Design Group, what are their next steps to help affect some of this positive change? Well... This year we've got a, a campaign, it's an open campaign, running on making people friendly places. Um, so and I hope that's going to be a, a long-term theme. Um, we've got a, an initiative promoting strategic urban design. It's important to uh, think of towns and cities as a, a large-scale thing. Um, and there's a skills shortage in local authorities. Um, we are conscious that uh, there are many local authorities where they, they don't really have a strong enough client function. There, are, there isn't the knowledge uh, embedded within the, within the local authority to make these sorts of demands for high quality places. So that's another thing that needs to be addressed. Um, and personally, what I would like to see in the future developing is a more openness within the silos um, so that uh, somebody who works outside a particular professional silo can see the, the issues pertaining to um, utilities. So that it's not, say, practice as a dark art in which 
nobody else has any authority or interest or, or right to inquire. Um, but is made a lot more open. And I think this happens right across the board. If the specialisms were a lot more open uh, in, in what they do, and more uh, receptive to the, the interests of other, other specialists, um, then I, I think we would tend to get better, better results. And this is really why the Ebenezer Group was set up all those years ago. It's <clears throat> respect between uh, specialists working towards a common good. No, that's really interesting and I think strategic urban design is quite an interesting concept that we might need to unpick in the next few years to see what that strategic overview might look like. So thank you very much for your time, Robert. Thank you. Thank you.